0: Welcome to DeBased, a show about the current state of money with Jeff Dice. Welcome back to DeBased. My name is Benjamin Vern I'm joined by Jeff Dice. Jeff, how are you doing today?
1: Ben, I don't like this debt ceiling unholy deal made over Memorial Day weekend. Uh, I think it's actually not a surprise that they hammered out the details of this when Americans were busy, preoccupied elsewhere, but nonetheless, here we are.
0: Yeah, Jeff, I think when Democrats and Republicans can come together and find a solution that works for both of them, it always ends up not working out for the American people. So what do you think is actually going on with this deal? Do you think it's going to get passed? And what is actually inside of this?
1: Well, Yes, I think it will get passed as of this recording on Tuesday. It's not yet passed by the House and Senate, but I think they'll come up with a deal simply because both of these parties fundamentally believe in the spending uh, that Congress engages in. And obviously, there's more spending than taxes, so debt needs to be increased to do so. It's interesting if we look back to say that really, you know, World War I ruined so many things from my perspective, and up until World War I, Congress used to have to approve individually any new expenditures that required debt as a standalone bill. And then as the 20th century progressed, they came up with this idea of a debt ceiling where we could just set an amount up to which Congress could spend without having to worry about it, almost like a credit limit on a credit card. And of course, there's always this political dog and pony show whenever we get up against it. I was interested to see, there was uh, an op-ed about a week ago by our favorite economist, -economist, pseudo-economist, conscience of a liberal, Paul Krugman, over at the New York Times. He made a couple of interesting points in his op-ed. He said, look, and this is fair enough, he said, governments aren't like people. Governments don't die. They don't have to pay their bills. All they really have to do is be able to service their debts. And he mentioned that uh, the the British Empire never really paid off or is, in, a, in effect, still paying off debts from the Napoleonic era. And of course, he's right in a sense that sovereign governments have the ability to print currency. Uh, they have the ability to issue debt, treasury debt, as long as there's a market for it. Sometimes their own central banks are that market. And so they never really have to worry about servicing their debts in that sense and this is really the foundation of what we call modern monetary theory which uh, Janet Yellen I believe is somewhat enthralled to uh, and a fair number of you know sort of mainstream economists will give it a nod which is the idea that a sovereign government can never you know can print as much currency as it needs to absent a serious bout of hyperinflation uh, and so Krugman is echoing this, let's, let's be fair here, Dick Cheney famously said back in the W era that deficits don't matter, we create our own reality. And so there's a, a, a segment of this on both the left and the right, I would call it almost a messianic view of government. The government ha- doesn't have constraints or limits on what it can do or what it can imagine or, or what it can spend and therefore what it can borrow. So the debt ceiling is really a symptom of this messianic complex, I think, which now uh, it, it pervades America's view of its own government and what it can do and where money and wealth come from. This idea that money and wealth are the same thing, which of course is incorrect. But what the rest of the world is going to see is a couple of things. First, they are going to take this as yet another indicator that the United States will never get its fiscal house in order. In other words, there's never going to be a point again, at least in the near future, when Congress will raise as much in taxes as it spends in a particular year, that the United States will continue to issue more and more debt and essentially export inflation by doing so, by enjoying this exorbitant privilege of being the world's reserve currency. So I think that's a big takeaway. So even though it's awfully hard for them to do anything about this in the interim, uh, for example, de dollarization, which people like Keith Weiner and uh, Brett at Santiago Capital have covered in depth. You know, th- that's very hard to engineer in the near-, near term because countries need dollars to service their own US denominated debts. But it, nonetheless, this debt ceiling uh, fiasco, I think, shows them that in the long run, they're going to have to do something about this to counter the US dollar's dominance if, if they ever expect to not be basically strung around by the US Congress forever and ever. The other important takeaway, I think, from this debt ceiling uh, fiasco is that Krugman's comment about debt service while correct does not reflect that things have changed fundamentally in terms of the debt that's out there. You have to go back and remember that really since about 1982 under Paul Volcker, that basically there's been a 40 year a pattern of US interest rates on treasury debt going down and down and down. Now there were little hiccups where it went back up like after 9-11, for example, but for the most part, we have enjoyed a 40 year precipitous decline in interest rates from well above 15%, basically down to about zero. So as a result of that, all of this US treasury debt that's outstanding, Uh, issued over the past several decades. If you go to a particular website called Treasury Direct, you can see the weighted average of all of that debt, meaning the amount times the interest rate, the weighted average of that debt until recently has been well below 2%, Ben, like something like 1.6%. So even though the US Congress had amassed this $30 trillion debt, the service was actually quite low. Uh, at 2% or 1.6% weighted average, that was only you know, $300, $400 billion a year in the federal budget out of a you know $4 trillion budget or so, let's say. So now uh, in 2023, as that at weighted average goes up to 2% and now rising, all of a sudden we're looking at about a $700 trillion, $700 billion, excuse me, debt service for 2023. So now we're at about 10% or more of that roughly $6.5 trillion federal budget. So pretty soon, if we were to get interest rates within historical averages, meaning U.S. Treasury interest rates from about 5 to 8%, that $600 billion or $700 billion figure would triple very quickly to $2 trillion a year simply on debt service. So this would be like a family that makes, let's say, that spends... Uh, $70,000 a year, spending 20 or 25,000 of that on just making minimum payments on their credit cards. So that's what's different today. When Ross Perot was warning about all this back in the early 1990s, probably before our friend Ben here was even born, uh, you know, everyone was saying, well, you know, yeah, that does sound like a problem. But because it's never really surfaced, a lot of people are now dismissive of it and say, you know, uh, you hawks have been talking about debt forever and it's never really become a problem. So, why should we worry about 30 trillion as opposed to 20? Why should we worry about 50 trillion? And of course, this debt bill allows for another 4 trillion between now and 2025 without any further acts by Congress. So, we're going to get to 36 trillion very shortly here. So, you know, things have really changed. Debt service is not going to be the insignificant matter that Paul Krugman uh, assumes it will be. And very soon, I think within the next decade, uh, the single biggest line item on Congress's budget every year won't be DOD, then it won't be Social Security and Medicare. It will be paying interest only on the national debt. So that really is a difference. That's something that we have to grapple with.
0: Jeff, do you think that that actually factors into interest rate decisions by Jerome Powell and the Fed right now? So they're looking and saying, hey, listen, you know, we're coming up against $700 billion just paying on the interest expense on the debt. Do you think that along with bank failures, the crisis is happening, layoffs, maybe a big unemployment number, high inflation, do you think that at some point there's going to be a trade-off between what they perceive as interest rates needing to rise for whatever reason and needing to drop to maybe help uh, help fix that federal interest expense?
1: Well, it's very, very tough. None of us are inside the mind of Jerome Powell or other members of the FOMC. He appears by his public pronouncements to be held bent on breaking inflation, which would indicate probably another rate hike in this coming month of June. Uh, But the idea that we are all breathlessly waiting this, Congress has to worry about this, we have to worry about this, anyone who's out there trying to get a mortgage or a car loan has to worry about this. It sort of brings up Jim Grant's uh, dictum that w- we shouldn't worry about what the Fed has to st- does anymore than we should worry about the umpires in a baseball game, right? They're not supposed to be an active player in the game. They're supposed to be a referee. And if we go back to the Fed's intended purpose when it was created, this was supposed to be a backstop. It was supposed to provide liquidity for insolvent banks that had found themselves in trouble, and it was supposed to provide that liquidity at a penalty rate. In other words, to punish those insolvent banks for their own uh, you know, fiscal malfeasance, let's just say. It is, but the, the Fed has become anything but that. It's become the lender of first resort. It actually pays banks uh, interest on excess reserves to just park reserves with the Fed. So the whole Fed, I, you know, this, the idea behind the Fed has been turned on its head. But the idea that we have to wait breathlessly for these pronouncements from Jerome Powell and the FOMC, I think it really goes to the silliness of our economy, the fact that a key price signal, you might call it, as David Stockman does, in our economy, the Fed funds rate is effectively set by a Politburo, a centralized planning committee. I think that has to deeply challenge our idea that we live in a capitalist system. And more importantly, we have to remember that interest rates are supposed to indicate Uh, time preference, right? The idea that uh, we have people setting interest rates is fundamentally anti-market. Interest rates aren't policy tools. They aren't sort of technocratic dials that policymakers are supposed to fine-tune. They're supposed to be set by supply and demand. And supply and demand when it comes to interest rates is all about time. We've forgotten entirely the temporal nature of interest rates. It's very simple. We know that all things equal, people would rather prefer to have stuff or consume stuff now than in the future. This is just something we can understand axiomatically about human beings. That's why, uh, all things equal, you would rather have your dream home at age forty rather than age ninety, because at age ninety you're probably not going to be around too much longer to enjoy it. Okay, so that's an axiom about human nature that we prefer present consumption to future consumption. So if we're going to loan someone a thousand dollars, um, even if they're a friend or a family member, maybe we want, we want some psychic reward instead of uh, interest. But if we're going to loan $1,000 to a stranger and say, a year from now, you pay me back, we would never loan, say, a year from now, just give me back a 1,000. Or worse yet, negative interest rates, a year from now, give me back 900. We would never do that for the very simple reason that over the course of that year, uh, the borrower could abscond uh, they could disappear. He or she could go bankrupt. They could certainly fall on c- fall on hard times, not being able to repay us. We might die ourselves in that year. There's a lot of uncertainty in, in the next 12 months of anyone's life. Even a young person c- could get hit by a bus. So we would never loan a stranger, at least thousand dollars today in exchange for a thousand or less a year from us. So that's why interest rates exist. They are there to express the relative time preferences of people who are willing to give up some consumption today uh, in exchange for uh, interest, getting more money back. And on the flip side, the, the relative time pre- preference of people who want that money now that they don't yet have so they can go consume something. And we see this every day. We see millions of Americans buying houses and cars that they don't have the, the, the money to pay in full in cash, and they would prefer to have it now, but pay some interest uh, in exchange. So that's just simple time preference on each side. And so not that long ago, this uh, mechanism, this wonderful mechanism of, of borrowing and lending and interest rates was determined by the relative savings habits of savers, uh, certainly within my own grandfather's lifetime. Uh, he, he was able to go to his local bank, and he didn't uh, have a FICO score. <laughs> uh, he was he was somewhat known locally, he, he had kept his job, he was an upstanding guy. And as a result of that, he was lent a certain sum of money in in back then a 15 year mortgage, which he paid off in about 10 years. Uh, back in the 70s, of course, he should have been borrowing more in the 70s because of inflation. But he, you know, he he was a frugal guy. So it really was the idea that a bunch of people have to save money in order for a bunch of other people to have money to borrow. But in today's banking world, we don't have that at all. I mean, banks can literally create credit. And so Mises distinguished between what he called commodity credit and circulation credit. Commodity credit was the old-fashioned kind where because some other people had put their money aside and saved some and put it you know, at risk for lending with a bank, uh, that money was available to someone like my grandfather to borrow and build a home, right? But while he was borrowing that money, that money was not available to the, to the savers, to the lenders themselves. In other words, there was one pool of money and someone was using it. Whereas with circulation credit, which is totally unbacked by anyone else's savings today, uh, we have this ability by banks to simply create credit not money, two different things, but to create credit. And as a result of that, uh, credit can expand very quickly. And uh, we ha- we see the debt levels uh, that we have in American society, consumer society today uh, on the individual personal household level with respect to student loans, with respect to credit cards, with respect to automobiles, with respect to mortgages. And I think we can all surmise, this is a bit of the unseen, but we can surmise that in a hard money environment, there'd be a lot less debt. In America, because you would have to have actual savings, actual commodity credit, uh, to make debt available, and so we're in a very different environment today. Um, and And it's uh, it's amazing if we think about it, but the total amount of global or worldwide debt has more than doubled since the crash of two thousand eight. And the MMTers and the Krugmans of the world would say, Jeff, that's no problem that you know, all that debt is somebody else's asset on a double entry uh, bookkeeping. But you know what, that's what people thought before the housing crisis of 2007. And a lot of banks and mortgage companies had huge write downs So I don't think the world has gotten twice as rich or twice as productive just since 2008. I think this debt's a real problem. I think it's gonna be an anchor on the American people, on, on the Congress, and on America's standing and position in the world going forward, and I think uh, we are going to enter a really tough period of stagflation, where uh, economic growth is is anemic, weak, maybe even negative, despite all the credit expansion, despite all the new debt, despite all the congressional spending. But at the same time, um, we're going to have price inflation. Uh, so you know, uh, prices rising while economic growth is stagnant. Is, is the worst of both worlds. And uh, I think Congress has really gotten us to this place and it's gotten us there with this idea that debt doesn't matter. And uh, I think we're about to find out whether it does or not.
0: Jeff, before we wrap here, we, we've had some announcements uh, for possible presidential candidates coming up. I kind of want right. to get your take on this. So we've got Trump and Biden both kind of re-throwing their hats in the ring again. Can you maybe give us your thoughts on what they might mean for the debt, for the dollar, for the economy in general? If you had to bet, you know, who's kind of gonna do what if they do get elected?
1: Yes, Trump versus Biden round two is is a, 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 a psychological experiment for which I don't think the American public is quite yet ready, but it's coming. It looks like it's coming in less than a year. What combined age of those two men is what? 240 or something like that. Uh, So obviously from any sort of fiscal or monetary policy perspective, both of these men are deeply unserious actors. And we we would have to basically say that, they would simply want Jerome Powell and company to cover them uh, politically. Um, Some of the other candidates have a little bit more interesting viewpoints. Uh, I have noticed that uh, I believe RFK Jr., uh, Ron DeSantis have both made some noises about Bitcoin. Uh, RFK saying, "Hey, I'm going. You know, you're, you're going to be able to run your own node, and we ought to keep Bitcoin in America. We shouldn't be uh, punishing it or trying to outlaw it." Um, uh, Vivak Ramaswamy, I, I, I'm saying that correctly. I hope uh, he has certainly said some good things about the Fed and its role in society. I think he's a real capitalist uh, at the end of the day. So that's encouraging that we're actually seeing a little bit of this. Uh, uh, I haven't heard much from Rick Scott. I, uh, Marianne Williamson, I guess, is also a Democratic candidate. Uh, I I'm not exactly sure what her monetary policy is. It might have something to do with astrology like Nancy Reagan's. Um, I don't know much about Nikki Haley's policy, but none of these people, however well-intentioned, have said anything to my knowledge about the underlying fundamental structural problems with the dollar and debt. And by structural problems, I mean, first and foremost, the inability of the US Congress to live within its means and not keep adding to the debt, uh, to, to raise enough in taxes and to cut spending enough to live within its means. Number two, and equally important, to deal with the entitlement reality. Uh, the, the promises we have made to Americans age 65 and over in terms of Social Security and Medicare are uh, completely unrealistic. Uh, those promises can never be paid in any meaningful way. Uh, the cohort of Americans over age 65 is going to double by, by 2050. Uh, the net present value, in other words, the discounted value. And again, we go back to time preference and interest rates. If we, you know, if we, what's future money worth? Well, we assign a discount to it because it's uncertain. But the discounted value of likely tax receipts over, over the period between now and 2050, and the discounted value of entitlements payments we're gonna have to make between now and 2050. Uh, the, the, there's a huge gulf between those two, about about a 200 trillion, 200 trillion with a T gap uh, between those two numbers, which a Princeton economist named Lawrence Kotlikoff has done a, a lot of work uh, in, in coming up with. And so we're basically not only $30 trillion or $31 trillion in the red, in it, realistically in terms of our pension obligations, we are over $200 trillion in the red in terms of what we're going to owe in the future and what we realistically have to pay. Um, any public company CEO who treated his companies or her, her company's uh, pension obligations as off balance sheet would be put in jail. But Uncle Sam doesn't have to account for social security and pension liabilities. In, in in part because the US Supreme Court has uh, ruled that you don't have a, a property right or an ownership right in your Social Security. If you die when you're 64 and you're single too bad, you, you know nobody gets it, no survivor benefit. and that's it. But um, you know, nonetheless, those obligations are real. And an awful lot of Americans are counting on those things and calculating their retirement years based on you. Know, I'm going to get that $1,800 a month uh, from Social Security. I'm not going to have to pay a $1,500 a month uh, health insurance premium because I'm going to be able to avail myself of Medicare. Uh, so, in terms of people's actual well-being, those those uh, debts are very, very real. And so, I, I wish uh, some of these candidates would begin to talk about the underlying fiscal realities. We can't keep spending as much as we are overseas. We can't keep spending as much as we are domestically, and we have to grapple. And wrestle entitlements to the ground, and uh, you know those things are awfully, awfully tough. The American public is not known uh, for its, you know, voting for austerity, uh, to put it mildly. So um, I'm going to be watching that uh, with with great interest. It's, but I'm partially optimistic that the Fed and monetary policy will at least be minor issues in the upcoming presidential election. And I think that's in large part because inflation is running so high that the American people are forced to pay attention to that. So I think that's encouraging. And um, I hope that one of these candidates, or perhaps a a different candidate than those we mentioned, will emerge as someone who's serious about getting the fiscal house of the United States government in order without relying on monetization of debt uh, by our Central Reserve Bank. So these these are big structural problems. They're fascinating problems. We we love to watch them. Obviously, you know we think uh, alternatives like gold are are one way to hopefully protect yourself against these depredations. But um, I don't have a lot of hope for the political process. And at the end of the day, that's on us. These politicians are catering to us. They're telling they're telling us what they think we want to hear, and we respond by voting, uh, yay or nay. So um, I think we all have an obligation. Uh, people, you know, those of us who care about this stuff, those of us who care about, you know, people your age, uh, generations not yet with us. uh, I think we all have an obligation to be out there doing what we can.
0: Absolutely, Jeff. Uh, I think we should end it there on that kind of sober analysis. But for those interested in a kind of brighter future, maybe look into a gold fixed income and monetary metals, You can check out monetary-metals.com. Jeff, any final closing thoughts on the debt, the debt ceiling, and where you think we go from here?
1: No, but we'll come back and look at this, maybe in just a few days if we have to, to keep people up to date.
0: Absolutely. Thanks so much.